The reading is taken from 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. Propriety in worship. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> yes. I, I did invite the nine o'clock congregation, if any of them wanted to move forward so they could pelt me with rotten tomatoes, they, uh, they were very welcome. Uh, so good morning, everyone. Another cracker of a passage, isn't it? And uh, the feedback we've been getting is that you've been enjoying 1 Corinthians, but for me personally, I think it's been a little more challenging. The passages that I've ended up with, because I, I have, I must admit, generally speaking, gave myself the most difficult ones have been a little bit like West Ham's recent fixture list. Newcastle away, one defeat all season for them. Chelsea at home, Tottenham away, and then followed on Wednesday by Man United away. More a case of surviving rather than thriving, I think, for them. But today's passage is certainly no exception. With more banana skins than trying to sort out the Northern Irish protocol, with the only redeeming feature being I'd far rather try and persuade you than the DUP. And let me just say, if I ever come across another preacher who willingly takes this passage on, I will certainly take my hat off to them. But actually, 
As we found throughout this series, and I think this is one of the reasons we've done 1 Corinthians, it forces us to tackle some tricky things as well as some wonderful passages that we all love as well. Um, Is it can really help us bring out some important principles and engage with the culture around us, as Paul was clearly seeking to do there. And it's those principles that I hope to draw out today. Even at nine o'clock, mostly 80s and 90s, there wasn't a single hat in evidence. And uh, that shows culture has changed. But there are some principles that can really help us to engage with our culture in a relevant way. So that's my aim to help us to do that and be faithful to those principles. So let's pray, because let's face it, I really need it. (laughs) Okay, Father God, thank you for your word, the truths of which are timeless, even if the application is fresh in every generation. And we pray, Lord, as we seek to be faithful, but also responsive and sensitive to each other and our culture, that you would equip us, inspire us, help us to respond to the tricky things, Lord, in a way that doesn't hinder us, but actually uh, helps us to handle scripture for ourselves. And we pray whatever you want us to take from today, Lord, that those, those things would Come from my lips, but most of all, be sown into our heads and our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, on with the sermon. And here's where we've got to in terms of the structure of the letter, okay? So we're, we're coming up to two-thirds of the way through. And if you, can we have the, the, the slide on the screen, James? And you'll see this is how it's structured, okay? We looked in the early weeks, divisions in the church, and I hope we won't create any new ones in this one today then that was chapters one to four then you can see in brackets the chapters uh number two we looked at questions surrounding sex and singleness chapters five to seven then we looked at controversies that hinder reaching people for jesus that was chapters eight to ten now we move into section four disputes over worship chapters 11 to 14 followed finally by questions about the resurrection which appropriately we will look at Uh, using chapter 15 straight after Easter. So that's where we've got to and where we're heading. Okay, so today we begin a focus on corporate worship. And um, as in everything Paul has said up to now, his motives remain. Doing everything for the glory of God, as he makes clear time and time again through the letter, not hindering the faith and worship of those inside the church, and that's a concern in this passage, not hindering the witness to those outside the church, and that's also a concern, being faithful to scripture and sensitive to culture. I hope you'll see that he's certainly that. And this is the key one I want to stress today. Promoting equality of respect and value of all before God. That is so important to Paul, and he is revolutionary in his time. And finally, being, um, well, and, and finally, seeking to really help people to think afresh about the prejudices, about the injustices 
in the way that they treat each other and to set the oppressed free. But despite that, I'm not going to pretend that this passage is anything uh, remotely easy for us at all. Because with the passing of 2,000 years, it is deeply culturally challenging. For so much has changed from the first century Roman world, as we expect it would have done. And of course, as far as the role and status of women are concerned, those changes are enormous and we can be hugely grateful for that. And frankly, in this particular passage too, there's also more confusion than usual in terms of what Paul actually means. There is genuine uncertainty about a lot of the more contentious uh, verses. So let me start with some of those challenges just to make clear what we can't be clear about. For one, we're not sure if by head covering, Paul means an actual covering like a veil or a shawl, not hats, I don't think, because I don't think they wore hats then, or if Paul was talking about having long hair. He seems to imply both in this passage. Second, we're not exactly sure why he's concerned about women wearing a veil or shawl. Is it a modesty thing? Is it a gender distinction thing? Or is it a show of respect thing? He seems to pivot back and forth between those three explanations. Third, what does it mean that the man is the head of the wife, as many of the translations put it? Now, if you're familiar with biblical scholarship, you'll know that question has killed a lot of trees. The Greek word that Paul uses for head usually means authority. A bit like the head of a school, that is the head teacher or the head waiter. But in some contexts, it can mean source, like the headwaters of a river. So which does Paul mean here? Authority or source or something else? And fourth, even after we figure all of that out, and I'm not sure we will, um, we're not quite sure how to apply this in our context. Our culture is so different. So is there any relevance to us at all? And one more reason why this passage is particularly challenging. We get understandably sensitive when we talk about sexism issues in our society because there's been so much pain and confusion and stereotypes around these topics. Maybe you've seen women subjugated or disrespected or oppressed in your life, in your experience. Maybe you grew up in a church where the men were the only ones who really ever did anything. They said that women were equal, but their roles were so limited with no real ministry and no decision making. But if it helps encourage you. The context Paul was writing to was even more contentious than ours. On the one hand, you had the Jews who were uber traditional and patriarchal. On the other side, Corinth was one of the most sexually confused societies in history. Now, I know it's been mentioned before, but the, the word Corinthianize in Greek was actually used as a verb and it meant to sexually corrupt someone and sexual promiscuity was rampant in that place at that time. There was even a division in the gladiator games which were 
big then, where women would shave their heads and conceal their feminine nature and enter the arena as if they were men. That's the context in which the apostle says these things. He's speaking into, referencing, and correcting both audiences. But actually, I think the dominant cultural context was that in Roman society more generally, and Corinth was a fiercely Roman place, even though it wasn't in Rome, obviously, but it was full of uh, retired Roman soldiers and proud of its Roman allegiance. And in Roman society, the wearing of hoods or veils marked a married woman as both respectable and deserving of respect. And I think it's this which predominantly determines Paul's guidance, for it's a cultural reference point for most of the people in the church. So let's now unpack the passage. And uh, after a thank you in verse 2 for them remembering him and holding to his teaching, Paul begins his main section with his statement about headship. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, as I've already said, we can't be sure what he means here, though source has been the fashionable interpretation in recent decades. Head is the traditional translation but as we're all aware, has unfortunate associations with domination and mastery in, a modern, in the modern world, which fail to hit or to fit, sorry, Paul's precise meaning. But the way that I understand this is that it seems to me little doubt that Paul uses the word as a metaphor, probably to mean the one who represents the whole which in this world, men, in the context of their families, most definitely did. The kephale, which is, uh, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but that's the Greek word, which is translated head. The kephale of a family is the one who represents that family's public face. Okay, The representative contact person who focuses its identity, but in every other respect is equal. And I emphasize the latter because of the parallel of God the Father and Son, which Paul has drawn in that verse. Father and Son are both equally God. Just as with the different roles and functions, with different roles and functions set within the whole, in the context of love. That love within the Trinity is the model for male and female differences, and indeed for all family relationships. And I think it's a pretty healthy or helpful perspective as we think all this through. Who can doubt the love that God the Father and God the Son have for each other? And that is the way in which male and female relationships should be seen for Paul. To which we can add the parallel that he draws in Ephesians between husband and wife and Christ and the church. Now, these are quite famous words. You probably know them. Chapter 5, he urges husbands to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. Now, I don't want to pretend that it's still not hugely countercultural and tricky for us today to read these words. But it certainly doesn't justify husbands mistreating their wives. Rather, it's putting them first. For saying that the man is the head and that the wife should submit to the husband doesn't mean that women are absent from decision-making. Just that in a tie, the man bears the white the weight of the final decision. Tim and Kathy Keller, who, and Tim Keller, many of you will have read, use this personal example in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. They had a decision to make on whether to move to New York City. Tim felt yes, and at that time she felt no. The time had come to make a decision. They couldn't put it off any longer. So he conceded, okay, Kathy, if you don't want to go, we won't. But his wife said, oh, no, you don't, you coward. <laughs> You're not making me bear the weight of this decision. You have to make it. He had to make the decision after getting her input for what God wanted for their family. And as you probably know, an incredible ministry in New York City came from that decision. So spiritual headship is not license to do what you want to do, but empowerment to do what you ought to do, which is what God is calling you to. Which in the vast majority of cases is something to which both partners agree. Exceptions should be incredibly rare, and frankly, if they're coming up on a regular basis, this is veering into abuse. To put this in context, in 11 years of marriage to Kate, and it was our anniversary yesterday. <laughs> I've made a decision like this once, after many hours of discussion and with her permission. We agree to disagree, and she agreed to go with my decision. And believe me, there have been many disagreements over the years. And of course, every other time, she has been right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so that's marriage. Um, that's, at least that's issues around Christian marriage. And clearly that's not relevant to everyone here today, either because we're single or divorced or, or widowed or because our partner isn't a Christian. But Paul's focus in our passage is not, of course, marriage, but public worship. In particular, those who pray or prophesy or preach prophetically from the front which verse 5 makes clear includes women, a revolutionary freedom in its time. You think women could speak publicly in the synagogues or in the, you know, the debating chambers in Athens and Rome? Of course they couldn't. This was truly extraordinary that Paul had given them that freedom to take on these very prominent roles as long as they or the men didn't do so in a way that undermined the worship, faith, or witness to others. And the whole issue here turns on the issue of respect or lack of respect. 
For the context is the vast majority of women in churches then were married because women married so young, often as early as their early teens. And as I've already said, in Roman society, a hood or a veil was what a married woman was expected to wear in public as a mark of respectability. For in the context of public worship, a married woman without a hood or veil was in effect inviting men to size her up as a woman who might be willing to be propositioned and available. And in an era in which marriages were usually for financial, social, business, or other advantage, and seldom for love, promiscuous relations were unsurprisingly relatively common. But scholars also agree that there's little doubt that free, gender-neutral attire would have attracted some Corinthian Christian women who wanted to break free from conventional roles or constraints on the basis of gospel freedom and sex equality, which Paul's teaching had so wonderfully granted them. They were also inspired by some prominent Roman uh, married women in elite Roman society who also had freedom and expressed themselves in that way. So, some of the Corinthian women showed off their freedom publicly, producing the tension that Paul addresses in this passage. And his overriding concern, as he gives his guidance, is that as throughout the letter, that every Christian would show as much concern for the feelings of others as for themselves. So it's okay to want to express your freedom. But he's just saying, don't do it in a way that others feel is disrespectful or which gives an impression quite contrary to the one that you mean to give. Or where your dress code might distract others from their ability to worship, even if it patently shouldn't. And in the rest of the passage, Paul develops this, affirming the difference, the complementarity and the mutuality of the sexes, arguing, contrary to some postmodern trends today, that the difference between the sexes is more than a matter of mere physiology and not merely the result of social construction or social convention either. For God created humankind, male and female, The relation between the sexes is neither one of domination and subservience, nor one of sameness and interchangeability. Rather, sex difference nurtures mutual respect, not domination on one side or manipulation on the other. And Paul ends, in effect, with a common sense practical appeal to them and to us. Do you want the church to appear as those who have no respect at all for norms that invite respect in society at large? And the answer he invites is clearly no. For he wants, and I hope he want, we want, no barrier to people coming and growing in faith. So let me draw all this together by reading out now the verses from this reading that I like the most, frankly, and I find 
the most useful to help us understand and interpret this passage and summarize what I've been wanting to say. The first is verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. And verse 12, for as a woman came, for as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Verses that together capture the absolute parity of men and women, made different but equal and needing each other. And both finding their value and purpose within their submission and reverence for God. And then followed by this permission, which is so important as we seek to respond to this passage in verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? A freedom to judge for ourselves that we are using as we evaluate what's appropriate in our context, however different from Paul's time that might be. Followed by this helpful explanation of Paul's position in verse 16. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God, to which we can answer that we do have another custom. Paul was not to know that, no more than anyone else could look 2,000 years ahead. But we can say definitively that today things have changed. Hats and long hair are no longer associated with decency and propriety in our culture. And so if we are allowed to judge for ourselves, as he invites us to do, we can conclude that in our moment in history, these rules are not necessary. Which means, men, you don't have to cut your hair. What a relief that must have been to Joe <laughs> and to most men in the 1970s. <laughs> he doesn't comment on perms, by the way, but there we go. And women, you don't have to grow your hair. But we do need to ask ourselves whether there is anything in our practice of Christianity which does hinder others in worship or anything which does hinder others coming to faith. Whilst equally, what that doesn't mean is that we should change our theology or doctrine simply to suit the beliefs of our secular culture, whatever certain MPs or MSPs might think. And that's why, actually, to be topical, Kate Forbes deserves our prayers and at least partial backing, even if we don't agree with everything she believes. Now, remember, Paul congratulated the Corinthians in verse 2 for holding to his teaching. What's being reviewed and considered here is not the theology or doctrine itself, simply how that teaching is implemented making sure it's sensitive and helpful to all. Now, two final thoughts before I finish. First, one about safeguarding. Tragically, this sort of passage has been wrongly used in the past to justify the abuse of women. We must have absolutely no tolerance of that 
in any way. The church must condemn it and support and protect victims of it at any cost, as we will certainly do in this church. And secondly, we need to keep talking and thinking about these tricky issues, all of the ones which this letter has thrown up. That's why we chose to do 1 Corinthians, because it helps us to think. Now, of course, I may not have everything right. I'm sure I don't, just as you probably don't either. There'll be a range of views out there, and in many ways that's healthy and good. But it's what we do with those views that matters, and that in all things we're sensitive, respectful, and kind. Wrestling with scripture and with culture, prayerfully and pastorally, with humility in discussion with others who are wanting to do the same. Seeking the truth in love to build marriages and families and churches of love in which God can be understood and experienced, worshipped and seen as we live out his mercy and grace. Amen. I want to just lead us in a time of response now, really for silent reflection and prayer. I'm going to lead us through three times of silence in which we can respond or bring to him different things in our lives that flow from what we've thought about today. So first of all, let's just uh, close our eyes as we do this. In the first time of silence, let's bring before God any anger or pain or hurt that we've experienced in this area. Let's now, especially the men here, confess silently any ways that we've fallen short of that mutuality, of that equality within the love of the Trinity, our model. Let's now ask God 
to give us through his Holy Spirit his love and sensitivity rooted in that mutuality and equality to help us in how we live with each other. Father God, thank you for what we've thought about today. Would you equip us, inspire us, but also heal us and forgive us. That we might love each other, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free and any other way in which we are different, that we might have that love and respect and sensitivity and commitment to each other that you have, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.